You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. And I invite you to uh, return to Psalm 104. I'm just going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 9. That's all the further we'll make it. There's 35 verses in this great psalm. Uh, We won't make it through all of those this morning. Unless you want to be here for a really long time. Uh, We could do that if you like. Psalm 104, verse 1 through 9. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took the flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that you would teach us, O Father, from this great psalm. Teach us, O Lord, from your word this morning, opening our hearts, O Father, to it, opening your word, O Father, that, Lord, we wouldn't just see black ink on a white page, but that we would hear your voice, O Lord, speaking to us. So speak to us, O Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we continue in our study of prayer this morning and having um, finished the Lord's Prayer, uh, working through the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer, you will call that, recall that first petition involves the sanctification of the Lord's name, right? What do we mean by that? When we say, hallowed uh, be thy name, what are we saying? Uh, we're saying that we want the Lord's name to be held as holy, Right? That the Lord's name would be regarded as holy. That the Lord would be glorified uh, in our lives, not only by what we say and what we do, but by what we think. And also that uh, this would in turn be done by others who are around us. That all things would uh, praise uh, the Lord. And that was initially my reasoning for coming to Psalm 104. Uh, What do we have here with the first word in Psalm 104? Bless the Lord. And we might ask the question starting right out, well, how do we bless the Lord? It's always the, um, the superior that blesses the inferior, isn't it? Isn't it always the superior that gives the blessing to the inferior? How in the world are we going to give a blessing uh, to the Lord? What is meant by blessing the Lord? And of course, most of us know the answer to that. We've been over that before. It simply means to praise Him, doesn't it? It simply means to praise him. And this morning, I, I really only have one point I want to get across. And, and that point is that praise has content. 
Praise has content. Now, that might not mean much to you right now, but hopefully here in the next uh, 20, 25 minutes, that's going to mean a lot to you. And the importance of it will begin to surface uh, as we go along. Notice that the psalmist says, bless the Lord. And of course, the Lord here is capital letters, right? What's that mean? That means the, the Hebrew name Yahweh is being translated. Why is that important? That's the covenant name, isn't it? In fact, we have a covenant uh, import uh, to these verses, very much so. If you see here, the psalmist refers to God not just as God. He doesn't say, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord God. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You see that? He has taken God as his own. But what's more importantly is not that he has taken God as his own. What's more importantly is this is pointing to the covenant. What is the covenant? The covenant is the, God's promise to gather people to himself. God's promise is where he says, listen, I am going to be your God. 21st century America is so arrogant that it takes that for granted. I think in many ways we are so full of ourselves that it's hard for us to even imagine that God wouldn't want to be our God. How could we imagine that? Surely he would want us to be our, uh, he would want us to, he, he, he would be our God, would he not? Um, only someone who's not real familiar with the scriptures could conceive of such a thing. What a privilege it is for God to want to be our God. There's a lot of reasons that we could give that he would not want to be our God, isn't there? But the beauty of the covenant is God says, listen, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God. And you are going to be my people and I am going to dwell in your midst. And we can see that here, can't we? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh Lord, covenantal name, Yahweh. It's twice. It's the second time there in the verse. And then he says, my God. You are my God. Now, what's going on here? You notice that the, the, the psalmist is kind of speaking to himself, isn't he? He says, bless the Lord, all my soul. What is going on there? Well, there's a, there's a principle going on there that I introduced to you a while back. You remember the handouts that I gave out? It's been, oh, many weeks ago. Uh, but there was a, a subtitle on it called Approaching God. Do you remember that? And there was a couple of verses that were, in, that were at the beginning of that. And those verses speak very deeply to what's going on here. You, you don't need to turn uh, to the first. But the first was from Lamentations. And, and just, I'll turn there here in a moment. I don't, you can just wait a moment. and um, You don't need to turn there and uh, bother finding the place. But Lamentations chapter 3, verse uh, 41. Uh, here the, the author, probably Jeremiah, says here in verse 41, he says, let us lift up our hearts and hands to you or hands to God in heaven. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. That was one of the verses that we looked at. And another verse, and you can turn here if you like, and that's to Isaiah 64. If you turn just right a couple of books, you'll be in Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah 64, and while you're turned there, I'll read a couple of verses of the context. Isaiah 64, verse 1, Isaiah is saying, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. 
From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sin. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Look at verse six. We have all become like one who is unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And verse 7 is the verse we're, we're coming to. Verse 7, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. And that was the verse that, that was brought out in that approach, if you will, that was brought out in that approach. Uh, I got that from Matthew Henry in his uh, book, uh, A Method of Prayer. He takes this. And he takes the reverse of this. Isaiah's complaint is that there is no one who rouses himself to take hold of God. What does Matthew Henry do with this? Matthew Henry takes the reverse. And he says, listen, Lord, we arouse ourselves to take hold of you. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? The indictment in Isaiah 64, 7 is that there was no one who does this. What I think Matthew Henry does so brilliantly is he says, listen, this is what we ought to be doing always and in prayer, he prayerfully looks to God and he says, listen, we arouse ourselves to take hold of you. Does that make sense? And that's what the psalmist is doing. Back to Psalm 104. What is he doing? He is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. What is he doing? He's arousing himself. And I think before we go any further, maybe we ought to think about this word soul. What exactly is that? I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about that one. What exactly is the soul? That's a fascinating thing to occupy our minds with. What is a soul? We need not read the scriptures very far in order to get the answer. If you keep your place in Psalm 104 and you just turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, there we get the answer quite clearly as to what this is. Genesis chapter 2, and especially verse 7. Here we have the creation of the very first man, Adam. And in verse 7, the, the Lord God forms the man of dust from the ground. Do you see that there? He forms the man from dust of the ground and he fashions him, fashions him, if you will, out of the dirt, if you will. And here he has this lifeless corpse of dirt, if you will. And then what, is the, what does the verse say? The verse says, and he breathed into his nostrils, what? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the moment that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, what happened to this corpse of dirt? It became a living being. It became a living creature. He becomes one who is, uh, instead of being lifeless, he becomes one who is breathing. He becomes one whose heart is beating. But more importantly, on the subject of the soul, he becomes one who is conscious. He becomes one who is aware of himself. And the soul is this consciousness. We each have consciousness, don't we? We each have this awareness uh, of ourself, this self-awareness. Uh, this indeed is what the soul is. And in fact, all living creatures, if you look uh, back to chapter 1, verse 30, to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has what? The breath of life. The breath of life. 
God imparts this breath of life. And he imparts this breath, if you will, uh, to each one of us. And if we go back to Psalm, back to to the Psalm, we can continue. What is the psalmist doing here? He's calling, he's calling his inner self. He's calling his inner man. He is calling that which makes him who he is. It is our inner person that makes us who we are, isn't it? It's not necessarily our bodies that do that. We recognize one another by the shapes of our, our facial appearance. We recognize each other by our cheekbones and our noses and our eyes and our hair and what have you. Uh, But that's only in part, isn't it? Where we truly, really recognize each other is by virtue of our personalities, don't we? As we get to know one another. What is it that makes us, each one of us individual, that makes us who we are? Is our soul, is it not? Um, It's been said, and said rightly, that we are a soul. Um, That's who we are. Um, Of course, in this lifetime, we're uh, a combination of body and soul, for sure. And in the consummation, when, when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be reunited with a perfect body and we'll be body and soul for eternity. But that animating principle that's in our hearts that takes these limbs and moves these limbs, causes the, the chest to expand and contract and the heart to beat and what have you, that's the, that's the product of the soul, isn't it? the soul and what is the psalmist doing the point here is he's taking he's reaching out to his higher being he's reaching out to really to his entirety the entirety of his person and he's saying praise the lord praise the lord and what's interesting is notice the very last line verse 35 the very last part of the last line what does it say bless the lord oh my soul praise the lord it starts this way It finishes this way. And what is really magnificent is that is exactly how Psalm 103 begins and ends, isn't it? If you look at the beginning of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. And here he goes on and says, and all that is within me. What else is within him other than his soul? Is there anything else? Blessed save it be the memories and the knowledge that he has of God, right? And the memory and the knowledge that he has of of, uh, one another, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Notice how it ends. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's rousing himself to take hold of God. And what does he say after this? He says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. Now, if we wanted a peg to hang this on, this entire psalm on, there it is in verse 1. That phrase, you are very great. That would be the peg. In fact, if you can imagine as a family tree, uh, you have the, uh, the, the, the patriarch, if you will, at the very top. And then everything fans down from there. You have the patriarch and the matriarch at the very top. And the whole family fans down from there. This psalm could be looked at that way. You are very great would be at the top. And the rest of the psalm fans down from, uh, from that uh, very peg. And my point is it has content. It has content. A number of years ago, it's been quite a while. I mean, this young man was only a um, teenager. I'm thinking, I'm not even sure he was driving yet. Um, he'd come into our music store and wanted to know if I'd help him with the sound system. It was intermittent, cutting out in here and there like ours does once in a while. And um, I said, sure. So we, we went off to the church that he was serving at. And, and I said, well, you know... Um, play some music through it. He didn't have anything to play music through us. We'll just, 
get on the microphone, start making some noise. So he's on the microphone and he's going testing, testing, one, two, three, testing, testing. And this is what happens typically whenever you're asked to do that. You'll say a few things for a little bit and then you forget. You, you're, you don't forget, you just run out of things to say. So it's testing, testing, one, two, three, testing, testing, one, two, three. And then there's a gap. And I'm like, you, you, you've got to you know, keep on, keep on. So he did it some more, you know, and then he stopped. And I noticed there was a music stand like, like this one near the microphone, and I saw some sheets on it. And I said, well, read some of the lyrics. Uh, read, read some of the songs um, that you have there. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. So the next thing I heard was this. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Okay. Um, holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 holy is the Father. I wonder where the next line's going. Anybody have any idea? Holy, 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 holy. It was about that time I said, well, how long did you work on those lyrics? And that's a classic example of what I'm talking about. It's, uh, this, it's, 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 uh, there's something else going on with that repetition, if you will. And that's a subject for another day. But the point is, if we're going to praise God, if we're going to take this first petition of the Lord's Prayer and we're going to praise God, we've got to have content. Notice the psalmist doesn't go, you are very great, very great, very great. You are very great, very great, very great, as some of popular songs would go today, something like that. There's no content now, why is that important? Why do we want to invest a, a Lord's Day morning on something like this? Because if you're like me, you want to praise God, don't you? Do you want to praise God with your prayer life? And do you ever find yourself, okay, I want to praise God, and I'm bowing my head, and, I'm, and the, only thing about, the only thing that comes out is, Lord, you're so great. You're so great. <laughs> you're so great. Um, we have to fill our hearts with fodder. We have to fill our hearts, if you will, with content. And that's what the psalmist begins to do. And that's what takes place in the rest of the psalm. Now, my, my singular point this morning, overarching point, is that praise has a content. Now, that is a real broad brush stroke. This could be said of many of the psalms, all of the psalms, actually. Uh, that isn't something that is, could just be said of Psalm 104. I want you to know that. But it's the first starting point with Psalm 104. We want to see that praise has content. The psalmist is rousing his soul to praise the Lord. And he utters this word in verse 1, you are very great. And then he begins to pile on the content, doesn't he? Look at the next line there. He says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. There, now we're starting to get some contrast. Clothed with splendor and majesty. Well, you hear me say splendor and majesty all the time in my prayers. What, are, what does that mean? It means he's magnificent. You know, that you look for words to try to describe God with. Uh, it means he's magnificent. It means he's royal. He's magnificent. He is royal. Verse 2 continues to flesh this out. Covering yourself with light as with a garment. What does that mean? One of the questions in my own research of this psalm and my own 
questioning of this psalm, one of the things that I was concerned with here is, is, is the Lord speaking of his essence or is he speaking of something else? What exactly is he speaking of? Well, what do I mean by all that? Well, let's think about the word light. It comes up in Scripture a lot, doesn't it? We can think of 1 John 1, 5, uh, which you, you've all heard the verse, God is light, right? God is light. And, this, and the verse goes on saying, in him there is no darkness, so what does light mean in that context? Well, God is light. In him, there is no darkness. We're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper this morning. I'll be quoting 1 John 1, 9, which is in that context. And in 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? If we confess our sins, he is righteous and just. To what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us for, uh, from all righteousness. The context of that uh, is moral impurity or sin, if you will. And this whole idea of God being light. What is light? It's moral purity. God is morally pure, and in him there is no darkness. Well, that's how light is used in that verse. Now, we might be thinking maybe of uh, 1 Timothy 6.16, where God is said uh, to dwell in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. What a, what a verse. Uh, what that means is we cannot see him. You know, the, the, in numerous places in the scriptures, we're told we can't see God and live. Why? Uh, because of his consuming holiness. What is that? As sinners, we can't... Uh, Isaiah, who's a very righteous man, sees a partial uh, theophany, if you will. He sees a partial manifestation, manifestation of God, if you will. And what does he do? He cries out. You know, I'm coming apart here at the seams. Why? Because of this uh, magnificent holiness of God. Uh, this magnificent holiness of God, this consuming holiness. So light, that's what light has in view there. But what about our context here? Is he, speaking about his, his, is he speaking about his essence or is he speaking about something else? Well, the, the context, three things important, right? Context, context, and context. What is the context? Well, notice what is said next. He covers himself with light. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. In other words, we all got dressed before we came here. We're all wearing clothes. We're all wearing various kinds of clothes, from a suit jacket to a, uh, to a T-shirt. We're wearing all kinds of different clothing, a garment. We put a garment on. So he's covering himself with light as with a garment. Let's keep in mind this is poetry. It's poetry. It's, it's not prose. It's, it's poetry. Why is it poetry? We'll get into that here in a few minutes if we have time. But it's poetry. He's covering himself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. What a wonderful thought that is. As we can look up at the heavens, and how would you begin to stretch out the heavens like a tent? Some of us have tents. Tammy and I have a, actually a pretty nice tent at home, and one of the reasons it's so nice is it never gets used. Um, and given our, both of our backs, um, we don't have any plans on using it anytime soon either. Um, we, we, going out and sleeping on the ground isn't something that excites us too well at these, this point in the game. Uh, although many people love that, but the tent, I mean, it folds up real nice and, and then it unfolds real nice and, and it's, it's a pretty nice tent. Um, imagine stretching out the heavens Imagine unfolding these. That's what God did, isn't it? When God spoke and everything came into existence, what he did is, a, like if you wanted to put it in poetry, which Psalm 104 has been said, it's Genesis 1 and 2 in poetry, in poetic form. In many ways it is. And this poetry where God takes the heavens and the earth and he stretches them out like a tent. 
And there they are in all of their intricacy. All of, I mean, you think of all, of the, all that's going on in the heavens. We, we, don't know the, we, 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 we don't even know this much of what's going on out there. And God stretches it out like a tent. Covering himself with light. What kind of light is this? This is a lot like a flashlight. You know, some of you know I'm trying to get our old Jeep fixed up. And I was working on it yesterday. And there was a place that I couldn't see very well. So what did I do? I reached for a flashlight. And with the assistance of a flashlight, I was able to see quite well. God is a spirit, isn't he? God is spirit. Can you see a spirit? I can't. Um, The point is he's invisible. Is he here in this room with us right now? Absolutely. He's right here. Um, is he in the house next door? Is he in this, is he, is he in, is he in Wellsville? Someone say, well, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, he's in Wellsville. Sure, he's in Wellsville. He's everywhere. Can we see him? No. It's a lot like the wind. Can we see the wind? No, but we see the trees blowing, don't we? And when we see the trees blowing, what does that mean? Someone will say, well, it's windy. How can you conclude it's windy? Because of the effects of the wind on the trees. We see the trees uh, blowing. We can't see God, but God has clothed himself as a garment in light, stretching out the heavens, if you will, like a tent. What does that mean? We can't see God, but we can look up and see the heavens and see what he has done. And from that, we can conclude that he is clothed in splendor and majesty, isn't he? For who else could stretch out those heavens like a tent? You see, prose couldn't carry this kind of weight. Only poetry could take us. You see how you, you, you know, uh, at the conference, the Ligonier conference, Derek Thomas kept using the word transport. You see how this transports us? It transports us, if you will. What is the psalmist doing? He's calling his soul. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And what is he doing? He's wanting to praise the Lord, but he is using content. He's got content here, and this content is amazing. Verse 3, look at verse 3. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. On the what? On the waters. No, you mean the wall. No, the waters. The waters. What's he talking about? We're going to see in a few moments what he's talking about is the sky. There's water up there. Lots of it, actually. And the Lord is laying his beams on those waters. If we were to take one of these rockets that these guys are taking and going 60 miles up into the air with. If we were to take some beams up there and go 60 miles up and penetrate the Earth's atmosphere to get to the very edge and we laid our beams on there, what would happen? I'm the wrong guy to ask exactly what would happen, but here's my guess. They would either float off because there's no gravity or they would start going down. And it would be the highest point that you could take these beams and drop them. So they're going to come straight to the earth in a mighty crash, aren't they? But not the Lord. What is the Lord doing? He's laying the beams of his chambers on the waters. See where poetry is taking us here. Our God dwells. He's, the heavens cannot contain him. That's what Solomon says at the dedication of his temple, right? The heavens cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. That's what he says, isn't it? So the heavens cannot contain him, but God is said to rule from where? 
He said to rule from heaven. That's only appropriate. Should God rule from earth? Heaven is above earth. God should rule from, he should rule from the heavens. So here he has set his chambers, if you will, on the waters. What does that mean? God has established his heavens, if you will. He has established his heavens in a way that no one else could establish his heavens. You take those beams up there on the outer edges of our atmosphere and they're not going to stay there. Same thing could be said of the earth here in a moment. Notice what else is said in verse 3. Um, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. What is this all about? Well, the clouds are his servants and so are the winds. Um, there's a lot that could be said about that. I think maybe next week we'll visit that. But for right now, let's just think the clouds are, his, the clouds are indeed his, um, his servants. Imagine what the clouds would mean to us if we made our living farming. I mean, we don't necessarily care about clouds. In fact, we'd prefer not to have any clouds, I think. We like that blue sky, you know. But we're not making our living out of the garden that's in the backyard, are we? If we were, the clouds would very much be um, a measure of our economy, wouldn't it? We care a lot about our economy. Um, and the clouds would be very much a part of our economy if we lived in this time. Um, he rides on the wings of the wind. What's that mean? Well, the wind isn't just out there blowing willy-nilly. It means it's blowing at his beck and call, isn't it? Uh, he's involved. Uh, verse 4, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. The author to the letter of Hebrews picks this up. He picks up the Greek translation of it, uh, translating messengers, angels. He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Uh, the word could be translated either um, uh, um, messengers or angels. Um, either way, um, the winds are subservient and his servants, his ministers are a flaming fire that could be referring to lightning. It could be for referring to a number of things, uh, whereas lightning uh, sometimes is referred to as a, um, an act of God. I remember years ago in my first house down in Weirton, uh, we had a really bad storm. It took out a couple of trees. One of them hit the roof of the house, did a lot of damage. And um, I called my insurance agent and I was told that it was an act of God. Um, to that, I, I didn't disagree. I already knew that. I didn't need him to tell me that. I was kind of hoping he would help me with the damages. But um, unfortunately, I was on my own with that. Um, it was an act of God. Um, of course, it's an act of God. Um, and that's what's in view here. His messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Look at verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Don't be afraid to have these kinds of conversations with people. I had one, um, I'm thinking it was maybe Friday, uh, with my friends um, at the parts store. And, you know, the earth, what is the earth sitting on? Has anybody ever thought about that? I mean, what's it sitting on? And even if we were thinking about what the earth is sitting on, what in the world would we set it on anyways? The earth's kind of floating, isn't it? And, I mean... And I, I had, you know, I, I didn't bring this up. Actually, the, the guys at AutoZone started bringing this up with me. And, and, uh, and I said, have you ever thought about I me? Mean, the earth is just, what's holding the earth where it's at? I mean, what's, what's holding it there? I mean, scientists tell us that it's on an angle. You know, I remember, and I remember from, you know, I think maybe eighth or ninth grade. I'm, you, 
all of most of us probably had that little model, you know, that you can spin and everything. You know what I mean? You have the sun, and you know, you know what I'm talking about. This is not my area of expertise, but what we're told is the Earth is angled. You know, our globes—they have the Earth at an angle, don't they? And we're told that if the Earth were to move just a little bit this way or a little bit this way, that we would either freeze to death or burn up. So the the scientists are recognizing there's an amazing amount of precision involved in how everything moves. We know that the, 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 the tides are a product of our proximity to the moon. We understand uh, some of these gravitational forces. In fact, we understand a lot. We're able to go to the moon and come back. We're able to send vessels um, out into space a a pretty good distance and further and further with each year. Um, But back to this, again, this is not our eighth grade science textbook here. Uh, That doesn't mean it's anti-science, by the way. Uh, it's not anti-science. It's just not its purpose. But we're told that the earth, that he set the earth on its foundations. What are we to take from that? We're to take this from that, that the earth is secure. Someone say secure. I've been watching the news lately and it doesn't seem secure. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> that seems like it's coming off of our hinge. I mean, uh, sometimes I'm amazed by what I see on TV, and I think to myself, when we were kids, if we imagined it, we'd be talking about some of the stuff we're talking about right now. We would have thought, you've lost your mind. Um, but here we are. Um, we are talking about it. I'm not talking about the instability of the world, uh, world meaning the way we behave ourselves and the way we think. We're talking about the stability of the earth, the fact that the earth is on this axis. You know, in electronics, we have a, a phrase known as ground. And in the UK, they don't refer to it as ground. You know what they refer to it as? If you're looking at a product that's made in the UK, um, they call it earth. It's to be earthed. Now, why would they refer to it to be, as something to be earthed? Well, if, a, if an electronic circuit loses its ground, it may still function a little bit, depending on how compromised the ground is, but it's going to function crazy. I mean, you want to talk about craziness. It can go berserk. If you lose the ground completely, it'll, it'll quit. But if, you, if your ground is only compromised in part, oh, it can, you can pull your hair out trying to figure out what's wrong with it. It just goes berserk. And the idea here is that the Earth is indeed orbiting around its circuit, if you will, with great precision. You know, the old preachers used to say, this big, massive ball should just be falling somewhere, shouldn't it? I mean, try to imagine it just staying there. How in the world could it stay there? Well, here's how it could stay there, because the Lord has commanded it to stay there. He's commanded it to do that. You know, like I was sharing with my friends, honestly, I'm like, you know, you, you realize that there's a bunch of water up there? I mean, when you look up, you don't see black. You look up, you either see clouds or you see blue, right? We prefer to see blue, but when we're looking at blue, what are we looking at? We're looking at moisture. If you took all the moisture away when we look up, what would we see? We'd see black, right? Well, why? Well, that's in our psalm. Look at verse 6. You covered it with deep as with a garment. This is referring to day one of creation, day two of creation, day one and day two. 
Here, you know, you go back to Genesis 1, and there you see uh, God uh, speaks the, the universe into existence, and the, the earth is just a massive ball of water, isn't it? And the spirit is hovering over the earth. And, and what happens? Well, God creates the firmament, if you will, or he creates the, uh, the sky, if you will, or the expanse. Verse 6, you covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took the flight. Have you ever wondered what it would have sounded like to have heard God say, let there be? Has anybody ever wondered that? Because I have. Often. If we could be there and if we could hear at the, in the midst of the nothingness, and to hear that, that word, let there be. And the psalmist seems to be thinking the same thing because he, he uses the word rebuke. He uses the word thunder, doesn't he? At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took the flight. And, and again, it's poetry. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Every valley is appointed. Every mountain is appointed. You set a boundary, verse 9, that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. That is the waters. This sounds like the end of Job, doesn't it? One of the songs that we sing. You know, I think maybe Job 38, right in there somewhere, of uh, the end of, of the book of Job where uh, the Lord is looking at the, at the seas. He's looking at, you know, who commanded these seas? Who, who commanded these proud waters that you can go this far, but you cannot go no further? There you must stop and return to where you come back. And they do that, don't they, all day long, exactly where the Lord has commanded them. Um, I didn't think we would get much further. I think it's a good place to just pull over and take this in. What is my point this morning? Is that praise has content. What is the goal? Is that I'll get you kind of started in Psalm 104 to where you can say, you know what? How would be thy name, O Lord? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, you are very great. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. It's, we look around and we can see your revelation everywhere. We can see how you reveal yourself everywhere. But you know, we should conclude by saying where we see God most acutely is where? We see him in Christ, don't we? And where do we see his love most acutely? We see that at the cross, don't we? That's where we see it. You know how much God must, a God that's this powerful, able to speak and to organize and synchronize everything from the protein cell to the galaxy, loves us so much that he himself would come in the person of Jesus Christ and hang on a cross and die for our sins. That's breathtaking, isn't it? So that we could have a bright future in his presence. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table, is it not? So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we do desire to praise you. We do desire, oh Father, to offer words of praise to you. We desire very much to offer words of adoration, O oh Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us many, many things in your word that can fill our hearts, O oh Lord, with content, content upon which we can praise you with, Father. We've looked at a few things this morning, but we have not even really begun to open up the treasure chest of your works, the treasure chest of your attributes, the treasure chest of your person. O oh Father, you have revealed yourself so 
so amazingly in your word. Uh, fill us, O oh Father, with these things, O oh Lord, that uh, praise and adoration for you would be on our hearts and minds and lips always, O oh Father. Fill us with this content, we pray that we would praise you. And most importantly, O oh Father, fill us with Christ by way of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.